together, Lord. So open up the word to us and let it minister to us. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Sister Kim. And it came about at that time that Judah departed from his brothers and visited a certain Adullamite whose name was Hira. Judah saw there was a daughter of a certain Canaanite whose name was Shua, and he took her and went into her. So she conceived and bore a son, and he named him Ur. Then she conceived again and bore a son and named him Onan. She bore still another son and named him Shelah. And it was at Chezeb that she bore him. Now Judah took a wife for Ur, his firstborn, and her name was Tamar. But Ur, Judah's firstborn, was evil in the sight of the Lord, so the Lord took his life. Then Judah said to Onan, Go into your brother's wife and perform your duty as a brother-in-law to her, and raise up offspring for your brother. Onan knew that the offspring would not be his, so when he went into his brother's wife, he wasted his seed on the ground in order not to give offspring to his brother. But what he did was displeasing in the sight of the Lord, so he took his life also. Then Judah said to his daughter-in-law Tamar, Remain a widow in your father's house until my son Shelah grows up. For he thought, I am afraid that he too may die like his brothers. So Tamar went and lived in her father's house. Verse 12. Now after a considerable time, Shua's daughter, the wife of Judah, died. And when the time of mourning was ended, Judah went up to his sheep shearers at Timnah, he and his friend Hira the Adullamite. It was told to Tamar, Behold, your father-in-law is going up to Timnah to shear his sheep. So she removed her widow's garments and covered herself with a veil and wrapped herself and sat in the gateway of Enam, which is on the road to Timnah. For she saw that Shelah had grown up and she had not been given to him as a wife. When Judah saw her, he thought she was a harlot, for she had covered her face. So he turned aside to her by the road and said, Here now, let me come into you, for he did not know that she was his daughter-in-law. And he said, What will you and she said, What will you give me that you may come into me? He said, Therefore, I will send you a young goat from the flock. She said, Moreover, will you give a pledge until you send it? He said, What pledge shall I give you? And she said, Your seal and your cord and your staff that is in your hand. So he gave them to her and went into her, and she conceived by him. Then she arose and departed and removed her veil and put on her widow's garment. <clears throat> Verse 20. When Judah sent the young goat by his friend the Adullamite to, re to receive the pledge from the woman's hand, he did not find her. He asked the men of her place, saying, Where is the temple prostitute who was by the road at Anaim? But they said, there has been no temple prostitute here. So he returned to Judah and said, I did not find her. And furthermore, the men of the place said, there has been no temple prostitute here. Then Judah said, let her keep them. Otherwise, we will become a laughingstock. After all, I sent this young goat, but you did not find her. Verse 24. Now it was about three months later that Judah was informed, your daughter-in-law Tamar has played the harlot, and behold, she is also with child by harlotry. Then Judah said, bring her out and let her be burned. It was while she was, <coughs> it was, while she was being brought out that she sent to her father-in-law, saying, I am with child by the man to whom these things belong. And she said, please examine and see whose signet ring and cords and staff are these. 
Judah recognized them and said, She is more righteous than I, inasmuch as I did not give her my son Shelah. And he did not have relations with her again. It came about at the time she was giving birth that, behold, there were twins in her womb. Moreover, it took place while she was giving birth. One put out a hand, and the midwife took it and tied a scarlet thread on his hand, saying, This one came out first. But it came about as he drew back his hand, that, behold, his brother came out. Then she said, What a breach you have made for yourself. So he was named Perez. Afterward, his brother came out, who had the scarlet thread on his hand, and he was named Zerah. I don't know if you got all that. She was reading it so nice. But it was pretty ugly. That Canadian accent can make everything sound good. Tone, this is way, way too loud up here, a little boomy, so help me out. 38's an interesting chapter, a lot of things going on here. Um, and mostly none of it good. Joseph's been betrayed. Remember the last time we were there? His brothers ganged up on him. They beat him down. They stripped him. They threw him in a pit. Eventually, they decide to sell him, and they do that, and he's on his way to Egypt. Everybody thinks Joseph is dead and gone, but Joseph is on the way to finding his destiny in Egypt. This chapter centers on Judah, one of uh, Joseph's brothers who did betray him, and he's a son of Israel, and he's born to Israel uh, by Leah, and so he's one of Leah's sons. His character, his conduct, and his morality, much like his brothers, is pretty questionable. Now, I want you to know something. You know, God doesn't sanitize stuff when he puts it in the Word. It's just raw and it's real. I mean, if you don't, if people think the Bible's just this, you know, book of, you know, happy, clappy, fake, historical, you know, uh, nonsensical things, and it's real and it's raw. And um, it's in here for a point, to make a point to us that, you know, uh, as the people of God, we're not exempt from some of these things uh, happening in our lives. We're not exempt from making bad decisions just because we're God's people. You know, just because we show up at church and we carry a big Bible and we know a few verses and, you know, we say amen. Come on. Amen, Charles. Doesn't mean that, you know, some of this ugliness that the enemy doesn't want to work into our lives. So we see Judah and he's got questionable character. His conduct is just, I have no idea uh, where he gets some of this decision making from. His morality, we're going to see, is uh, his moral compass is broke. Verse 1, he goes out from his brothers and he goes to, you know, kind of make a life for himself, go his own way. Uh, he, he goes out and he chooses first, he goes and he chooses himself a Canaanite woman. And the first choice he makes is not good. Uh, it's tough to see God's children do foolish things or make bad decisions. And I want to say one thing before we jump into this, is that nobody sins in a vacuum, you know, and I want you to remember that when we sin, there's a ripple effect from our life to every life that touches us. You guys are way too quiet on Wednesday night. You know, and we, the devil will tell you nobody's going to know. It's not going to hurt anybody. It's no big deal. You, he'll forget. He'll tell you all that stuff, but he won't tell you about the ripple effect that's going to touch everybody around you. 
Okay, so remember that when we look at Judah's life here, and he thinks he has license to do pretty much what he wants, but there's a ripple effect that touches everything around him. The devil lies to us about sin. He always has. In the garden, did God say that you would die? You know, he likes, to, he likes to play semantics. He likes to play with rhetoric. He likes to put doubt and unbelief in our hearts. So here Judah goes out and he's making bad choices. The first one is this Canaanite woman that he marries in verse two. Judah saw there a daughter of a certain Canaanite whose name was Shua, and he took her and went into her. So he, he takes this woman, and remember, Isaac and Rebekah, when Esau married a Canaanite woman, Rebekah was losing her mind because she was a handful. And so what does Esau do? He marries another one. And, and, and to top it off, then he marries an Ishmaelite, which was worse. And, you know, he made all these bad decisions. We see the trajectory of Esau's life. Now we see the trajectory of Judah's life. The first bad decision is who he decides to marry. Listen, the most important decision you will ever make in life, besides accepting Jesus Christ as your Savior and Lord, is who you marry. Who you marry will either become a lid over your life or will help you get to your destiny in God. And so he, he makes a poor decision right out of the box. He sees this woman, her name is Shua. He marries her, he consummates the marriage with her and she becomes pregnant. In verse three, uh, Judah and Shua have a firstborn son, Er. And then she gives birth again in verse four to a son called Onan. And Shua conceives again and gives him a third son and his name is Shelah. So all of a sudden Judah goes from just being a, you know, someone tending sheep, someone working for Israel. He goes out, now he has three sons and a wife, instant family. Ur, Onan, and Shelah are his sons. So it might look from the outside looking in like, wow, God's really blessing him. Have you ever seen people who are making wrong decisions or doing wrong things, or maybe they're just acting in a way that's wicked and all of a sudden they're prospering? David struggled with this. He, he said, when I saw the wicked prosper, I almost slipped. I almost you know, lost my footing. Why? Because when it looks like people who make wrong choices and wrong decisions and they're being blessed and you and I are trying to do the right thing and there's not any blessing attached to it at the moment, gets a little confusing, doesn't it? You know, sometimes we have to hang in there. We have to hold our course. We have to keep the faith. We have to wait until the harvest comes. But here is Judah, and it looks like, it looks like God's blessing him. You know, everything seems to be working out. Three sons, that's a home run right there. He's got a wife. He's starting himself a little family here. Uh, verses six and seven tell that Judah's firstborn sir, Ur, his firstborn son, Ur, is given a, a wife named Tamar. So the boys grow up. So realize time is passing here. His family grows up. His oldest son is old enough to be married and he is given a wife. Tamar is this wife. Now, verse seven it's pretty shocking for us as New Testament Christians. Because I'll tell you why, we are immersed in grace. We are just covered in grace, but we don't realize the penalty for sin in the Old Testament was very harsh because there was no buffer of grace. I want you to see this here. Many people in our generation couldn't handle this. But Ur, Judah's firstborn, was evil in the sight of the Lord, so the Lord took his life. Hello? Did you hear that? I mean, there's some days when all our kids are bad. 
But by a show of hands, has God killed any of them? Not yet. Jury's still out on a couple. Think about this here. God looks at the boy. Now, you know, there again, we're under grace and everything is, you know, we're praying and as long as there's breath, there's hope of redemption and anybody can be saved. Amen. We see people get saved in, the, in our deathbed and, and there's always hope if there's life. God looks at this kid and go, he's evil. He's evil through and through and he kills him. Yeah, shocking. But that's, you know, it's not that the God of the Old Testament was, you know, angry and, you know, kind of crotchety and needed to take an anger management class. It's just that there was no buffer of grace there. So he looked at this boy and this, you know, this might be hard to wrap our heads around here, but he, he says, you know, he's evil and he takes him out. Now in our world with our philosophical psychobabble that explains away evil, there are people who tell you that everybody's good and nobody's evil. And the truth is evil has always and will always exist in our world until Jesus takes care of the source of evil at the end of the book of Revelation and throws him in the pit where he's destroyed, amen? But look, there is evil. Look around. There's evil stuff going on all the time. Shootings in mosques, shootings in synagogues. Wars in Venezuela right now, they disarmed their people seven years ago. Now the military is mowing them down with belt-fed weapons and running them over with armored vehicles. <laughs> and all the time while that's happening, we have people in our own government clamoring for socialism. It's a crazy world we live in. It's a dark time. And people are being deluded, why? Because there's a force of evil that is twisting people's minds that they can't even see truth anymore. What's going on? I'll tell you what's going on. God is preparing this world for the Antichrist. And he's preparing his church, his bride, to be taken out of here. But the world is going down quick. And if you don't see it, and if you want to explain it away, and you, and you want to pretend it's not happening, you do it at your own peril. Because it's time for the bride to get the spots and the wrinkles out. So evil has always existed. It always will exist. You can find it all over. We could say maybe this is one of the darker times in human history. What's going on right now? Now, so he takes this bride and he, he has this son and the son is evil. God takes him out. In verse eight, we see cultures and customs. The cultures and customs of the day were that it required for the kin of the person who died to provide children for the one who died. Are you guys tracking that with me? Now, this is kind of weird to us. Raise your hand if this is weird. If you're not raising your hand, you're scaring me. This, this is weird. You know, my, my brother-in-law dies and I get sent over to the sister-in-law. It ain't happening. Okay, now you got me. Okay, now, now, now everybody's feeling it. Oh yeah, there it is. But th this is weird. The culture and the custom of the day was, your brother's dead, you gotta produce offspring for him. Now this doesn't make sense at all. From a biological perspective, those aren't gonna be Ur's kids. They're gonna be Onan's kids, right? But, so it doesn't make sense any way you wrap your head around it. It's a culture, it's a custom, and, and they often don't make sense, but people abide by them. Now, Onan wants no part. The second boy was Onan. Ur is dead, God took him out, he was evil. 
Onan has to step up and provide seed, provide children for his brother with Tamar. Onan wants no part of this. In fact, you know, he doesn't, in verse 9, it tells us how he handles his duty here. He doesn't want to produce offspring uh, for his brother. And here's the reason why. He's spiteful, he's selfish, and there's nothing in it for him. That's what this is all about. We're going to see his behavior here in just a second here. Onan has no interest in doing anything for his dead brother. And you say, well, where did Onan get that selfish streak from? Where did he get that, you know, what's in it for me? Well, remember who his dad is, Judah? Remember Judah when it was time to deal with Joseph? What happened? They took Joseph, they stripped him, and they threw him in the pit. Guess who it was who thought it was a waste to kill him and not make money from it? It starts with a Jew and it ends with an Uda. It's a sharp group here. Okay? You're just looking at me. Judah said, let's not kill him. Let's sell him. What was that all about? Well, what's in it for me? If I kill my brother, what's in it for me? Oh, there's silver in it for me? So they, so they sold him to the Ishmaelites for 20 pieces of silver. Judah got the selfishness. He got, he got all of that, you know, handed down to him because, you know, it, it was in the family line that, you know, you had Jacob who was the deceiver. You had these things, but Judah decided to be selfish and be, you know, what's in it for me. And now his son has the same spirit. You know, I, I like to backtrack these things because I like us to see, you know, we talk about generational curses and all of these things a lot. I want you to see how they work. So hopefully the light bulbs are going on here. The boy learned to be selfish. He learned to be deceitful and he had it. He gave himself over to it. So he's like, you know, I'm not, I'm not doing anything for, you know, my dead brother. There's nothing in it for me. So, you know... The whole situation here keeps getting uglier and uglier. Now, what he would do there, Onan would, he was not willing to produce seed for his brother and produce children, but he was willing to have sex with Tamar. So let's just think about that for a second. He didn't flat out say, I'm not going to do it. He went in and did it, but he made sure that she didn't get pregnant by spilling his seed on the ground. Think about that there. Think, think, she knew what was going on, and, and this charade went on for a while until God said, I, I've had enough. And he kills Onan too. Two out of three are down. I mean, do you see the fruit of the bad decision to go away from his father Israel, to go away from the people of God, to do his own thing, to marry a woman who is outside of, you know, the, what God wanted him to do. He, he, he marries this woman. He produces seed. Yet now two out of the three sons that he produced, God himself struck down dead. Wow. How many times we try to produce things in our own strength and they don't work out? I wonder sometimes if God has had to strike some things down dead that I was trying to produce in my own strength. We should think about stuff like that. It's a serious, it's a serious thing to think about here. So, you know, son number two is down and verse 11 is just rich. Then Judah said to his daughter-in-law Tamar, remain a widow in your father's house until my son Shelah grows up for he thought 
I am afraid that he too may die like his brothers. So Tamar went to live in her father's house. So do you get this? Judah blames the whole thing on Tamar. You guys ain't getting this. Judah blamed it on Tamar, said the reason his sons are dying is because she must be like this black widow wife. She's poison. So he's like, I don't want to, I want to give her my third son. Wow. It's powerful. I mean, if you put yourself in his position, you know, you'd have to realize, hopefully, that, you know, your son's had some issues there. But I mean, how excited would you be to give your last son to the daughter-in-law that just buried two. So it's an interesting moment here, but I find it interesting that Tamar gets blamed for all of this. And in reality, ladies, you should be a little more perky right now than you are. See, it wasn't our fault. You know, it was not her fault at all. God didn't say, you know, Tamar's just too good of a wife. I need to take Onan. No, he didn't say, you know, Ur is just, no, it wasn't Tamar. It was their character. It was their behavior, but yet the woman got blamed for it. And here's Judah. I'm not, you know, go live in your father's house as a widow. He's telling her, you know, he's making her a promise that when this boy's old enough, you can have him. But he has no intention of keeping that promise. We're going to talk about that in a little bit. Verses 12 through 14, Judah's wife dies and he mourns her and he goes out to shear his sheep when he's done mourning the loss of his wife. Now Tamar finds out in verses 12 through 14 that her father-in-law is in the area and by now she's figured out that Judah has deceived her and he's not given her Shelah. So she, she realizes she's been deceived. I've been living as a widow here. I have no children. This guy told me to go home and wait, but he has no intention of giving me his last son. She's been deceived. So what does she do? She puts a plan of deceit in motion. And she gets up, and in verses 16 and 17, she takes off her widow's clothes. She dresses herself up to resemble a prostitute. And she puts herself in a place where Judah will pass when he's going to shear his sheep. And now in 15 and 16, he comes up to her and he believes she's a prostitute. And look at the response here. Uh, there again, the, these are the people of God. This is supposed to be a godly man who a tribe of Israel would come out of. And it says here, when Judah saw her, he thought she was a harlot. For she had covered her face. So he turned aside to her by the road and said, how here now, let me come into you. For he did not know that she was his daughter-in-law. And she said, what will you give me that you may come into me? He said, therefore, I will send you a young goat from the flock. She said, moreover, will you give me a pledge until you send it? He said, what pledge shall I give you? And she said, your seal, your cord, and your staff in your hand. So she gave them to her and went into her and she conceived by him. Let's just stop there. So what a situation. He's lost his wife. He's going to shear sheep. He sees what he deems to be a prostitute and his response should be, keep going. <laughs> right? Anybody but me? Come on, like, he sees, so what does he do? He goes and he arranges to, to have sex with her. And Now this is by any stretch of the imagination, this is shameful behavior. 
I mean, definitely not for the people of God, yet we see Judah just does what he feels like doing. He's done mourning. He's, he's not married anymore. You know, he sees who he thinks is a prostitute. She's setting him up. He falls right into the trap. Now, what an immoral situation has been constructed here. Both parties are operating in total deceit. Both of them have rotten motives. And it seems like, you know, uh, the deception is going to culminate into an issue here, but we're not quite sure where it's going yet. Judah decides to pay for his little excursion here with a goat from his flock, but he doesn't have any goats with him. So what happens? She says, you know what? You got to leave me, you know, a down payment or you got you ever been someplace and you forgot your wallet? You have to leave your watch. So there's no credit cards, right? So she says, give me something of value. Give me your ID. That's what this is. Okay, it's like, give me your driver's license. And she takes his staff and these cords that you could use to identify somebody by and his seal, his signet. So it was his personal seal. So with the three articles that she has, she's got them. Huh. Some people are clapping already. <laughs> but, you know, he has no idea what's going on, so he leaves the pledge. He leaves his ID. Now, look at, I mean, this is just like, I mean, what a scam. What a situation here. Judah finishes the deed, leaves behind, you know, his down payment. In verses 20 through 22, when he goes to pay for his visit, she can't be found. And the problem is, she can't be found, but she has his credentials. So now it's a mystery. Now he's a little bit confused. He's like, I'm trying to pay my debt here. I brought the lamb, uh, you know, and, and he asked the people of the area. He says, you know, did anyone see a temple prostitute sitting out by the gate? And the people say, there is no temple prostitute here. Think about this. And... You know, he hasn't realized he's been, he's been duped yet. But I want you to think about this. If he thought she was a temple prostitute, what is God's holy, why are God's holy people consorting with temple prostitutes? Temple prostitution was, you know, the mark of all the uh, pagan cults of the day because they used the temple prostitutes and they used sexuality and immorality to sucker people in to worshiping dead idols. There had to be some kind of payoff. It was a sensual payoff. But listen to me, uh, godly people should not be mixing with paganism. Yet he figured, you know, hey, well, it's just, you know, just like going, you know, to have your film developed or something. It's just a service which goes to show you the depth of immorality in this guy's heart. Pretty much once you sell your brother and make a profit off of him, there's no telling what else you'll do. So, I mean, we shouldn't be shocked here, but we should be shocked that we're seeing this behavior in the people of God. You know, think about how God feels trying to extract his people from the culture. And yet they're so immersed in it that they'll, they'll do something like this and just think it's fine. Before we get too judgmental, we should think, you know, how immersed we are in the culture and how, how much we are engrossed in the immorality of this world. You know, there's people online, Christians, fighting about watching, you know, uh, episodes of shows on TV that are pornographic. 
And you got Christians watching things on HBO. I'm not going to mention the names of the shows, but Christians fighting to say, oh, it's a good show. Meanwhile, there's pretty much softcore porn on these shows. And you got Christians saying, it's a good show. I was telling my wife, there was one young lady on there. There was a pastor commenting on the fact that, you know, we, we as Christians shouldn't be watching stuff like this. And this one little millennial young lady said, it's none of your business what we watch and you shouldn't tell us what we could watch. So in our world today, pastors don't even have the right to tell Christians not to watch pornography. How immersed are we in the filth of this world. What TV channels do you have pumping into your house? Let's just bring it, you know, when it was about Tamar and Judah, it was fun. <laughs> but now it's not fun anymore. What, what stuff is on your computer server? <laughs> you can't bleach it or shred it or bash it into pieces with a hammer. You're not Hillary. God knows what's on there. Even if you bleach it and blast it and blow it up and burn it away, God still knows. So immorality in God's people is something that, you know, it's always there and, and it's, it's a sad thing. But this is a situation that, <laughs> you know, here a guy sees what he thinks is a temple prostitute and he figures it's okay to visit her and now he's just kind of confused. Where did she go? Judah can't find the woman. He decides rather than risk embarrassment, he'll just drop the whole thing and let her keep his stuff. That's what verse 23 is about. Now verse 24, the proverbial other shoe drops and you know this isn't going away it says now about three months later three months in the it's probably in the back of his mind probably doesn't even think about it at this point three months later that judah was informed your daughter-in-law tamar the woman you sent away to be a widow and promised your son to you know she's pregnant and so it, look what it says she played the harlot <laughs> little do they know and behold, she is also with child by harlotry. Then Judah said, bring her out and let her be burned. Whoa. You know, by the, by the way we judge is the way we're going to be judged. That scripture kind of jumps out at me here. I know it's New Testament, and he never heard of that. But what was his judgment for her sexual misconduct? Burner. How about yours, buddy? Oh, it's all it's just cultural hypocrisy, stunning hypocrisy. Boy, we can really fool ourselves. We can really tell ourselves our sin's okay, but this sin, burn them at the stake. Wow. You know, Old Testament really digs down into the darkness of human nature here, and God doesn't sanitize it. So, you know, his idea is to burn her alive for, you know, she, he sent her away. Now, think about the hypocrisy there. He had no intention of giving her a son, yet he expects her to keep her end of the deal. You guys getting this? It's, it's ugly. And then he wants her penalized because, you know, she got pregnant. So verse 25 and 26, here comes Tamar out of nowhere and tells her father-in-law, you know, before he burns her, that she's pregnant by the man whose signet ring 
cord and staff these are. And she sends them to him. Ta-da. Your sin will find you out. He thought he was playing her and she played him. He thought he was hustling her and he got hustled. Do you see what I, all the time I'm pointing out the fact that you know, God will not be mocked. What we reap, we sow. And so, I mean, what we sow, we reap. And, you know, this is a, a perfect example of Judah's treachery. And he thinks, you know, he can get away with it, but he's not getting away. He sees, you know, he's busted and he's exposed here. And in verse 26, this is the only good thing that comes out of this guy's mouth in the whole entire chapter. She is more righteous than I inasmuch as I did not give her my son, Shelah. So he basically admits, I was hustling her, I was lying to her, I was abusing her, and she got me. Wow. There again, ugly situation, an embarrassing situation. Judah's treachery was trying to play Tamar and just to use her and he was going to leave her unmarried and childless and he could care less about her you know and he promised her he would do something that he never intended to do and I want to say something to you be careful about promises people make to you listen to me be careful when people I'll do this for you and I'll do that for you and I'm going to take care of you and you can trust me and don't worry about it come on is any of this sounding familiar I've had people in my life all the time, I'll take care of you, I'll do this for you, I promise, you can trust me. And listen, I've learned in life, the, the minute someone says you can trust me, you can't trust them. <laughs> if they gotta tell you you can trust them, this guy's making promises he had no intention to keep. She thought he was gonna keep the promise until she realized she'd been played. She saw the fact that she had been deceived and so she thought it was good to deceive him back. Interesting situation. She is more righteous than I. That's the right, that's the right conclusion there. Uh, now, he decides to leave the matter alone. He's not gonna you know, blow up the spot on himself anymore. He's uh, not about burning her anymore. He just lets it go. And uh, she finds herself pregnant in verses 27 through 30. She has twin boys in her womb. Every time in the, in the Old Testament when you see twins that are born in bad circumstances, what when they come out, they're going to be the head of some wicked people group. And it's no different here. So there's a lot of sin. There's a lot of misconduct. You know, there's a terrible mistreatment of this woman, Tamar. He decides to let her have the kids, but he never takes her as a wife. He never has, you know, relationship with her anymore. Basically, she, she went through his two sons there. She has two sons of her own, but she's had a really hard life, and she's been abused by this guy, and it's a, it's a bad situation. The two boys in her womb uh, are going to be two nations. They're going to be two people groups. Verse 28 shows us, you know, some strange stuff happening here at their birth. Remember when we had Isaac and Esau, I mean, Jacob and Esau in there, you know, they're, they're fighting to get out. And uh, you know what happened with, uh, you know, Jacob being the heel catcher. Listen to this situation here. Uh, the boys are in there. It says, um, moreover, it took place when she was giving birth 
that one put out a hand and the midwife took it and tied a scarlet thread on his hand saying this one came out first. So during the birth, a hand comes out first. Has anyone ever seen that before? It's a little creepy. So a hand comes out and the midwife ties a, a thread on it. Why does she do that? Because the firstborn got everything. It was very important to find out who the firstborn was. Hand comes out, she ties it off, but what happens is the hand goes back in and the next kid that comes out, no thread on his hand. So the one who breached first, it goes back in, the other one is born, so there's some strange stuff happening here. It's symbolic, it means something. We're not quite sure yet what it means, but he drew back his hand and behold, his brother came out. Then she said, what a breach you have made for yourself. So they named him Perez. Afterward, his brother came out who had a scarlet thread on his hand and they named him Zira. So Perez is gonna become the father of the parasites. And if you trace who they are, not good. Uh, I'm not sure about the other guy here yet, but um, he, I haven't traced his lineage, but I know the parasites were an issue. So at least one of the two is gonna be a problem for Israel. Uh, she has these two boys, she's cut off, she's alone, basically lives as a widow from that moment out. Judah's made a big mess, he's got one son left, two of them God struck down himself. And this man somehow, some way, has to become one of the heads of the 12 tribes in Israel. And like the church, there's a lot of spots and there's a lot of wrinkles. But God is bigger than our spots and wrinkles. And it's amazing what God can do. Let's bow our heads tonight. Father, we just thank you tonight for your word. And I pray, Lord God, that, Father, wherever the Holy Spirit's applying some of these principles to our lives, that we would just allow him to do that. Holy Spirit, sift us and search us and probe us and show us where we're wayward, where we make bad decisions. Show us where we're We've given ourselves permission to do things that are immoral. Father, the things we watch, the things we listen to, the things that we think are entertaining, purify your people, Lord God. Let there be no discrepancy. Let there be no hypocrisy. Let there be no breach in us that we would maintain our holiness and walk worthy of our callings that we wouldn't make excuses for our own sin and harshly judge others. Burn her, but I'm okay. Burn the world, Lord, but we're your people. Help us to embrace holiness, to have godly character, to make godly decisions, and to avoid being entangled in the worldly system that only pollutes us. I pray it in Jesus' name, amen. Amen.